It's the 9th of December 2014 and you're listening to Trashback Ratio. Hi, I'm Jackson, and with me as always are Destiny, Kyle, and Matt. Say hello! 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 What episode is this? It's the fifth one. Okay. You podcast dad. (laughs) (laughs) The podcast dad returns. Hello, hello. How are you kids doing today? (laughs) We're doing good, podcast dad! dad! Can you give me make equal sure you... attention? No, make sure your pop screens are clean. <laughs> hey, Dad, can you give me some validation for my life, please? No, make sure you're running your equalizer before you export your MP3. <laughs> <laughs> oh, podcast, Dad, we love you. I love you too, kids. <laughs> That's the end of that bit. What's everyone's thoughts on movies? This is the final episode of 2014, so, you know, we'll talk about that, talk about the year. Does anyone have a top ten list? No. I made a top ten list, but (laughs) the hilarious reality of my life is I saw 16 movies in theaters this year. List list the top ten list without context or explanation. Just list it in reverse order, ten to one. Sin City 2. Guardians of the Galaxy, Edge of Tomorrow, Dear White People, Noah, Godzilla, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Interstellar, Big Hero 6, and Under the Skin. There you go. I agree That's with That's a list. Dawn, Edge, and um, Under the Skin. I actually have to have like four or five different top ten lists because they're due to editors in a week and a half, I think. Why do you have to have different ones? I know they're for different sites, but... Because they're... Well... They're from different. They're for different sites, and I might change some of the ordering for some of them and include different things for them, so that they're interesting, so that people are looking at different things. And also, um, like for one of the sites, I don't do like a top ten list. I do a superlative list instead. Mm-hmm. I get you. I stopped. Keeping... Got a... Oh, sorry. I was gonna say nothing of interest, Destiny. Go I on. I was gonna say I stopped keeping track of what I watched back in May, so it's all a blur. I could not tell you what my top ten is. I saw a lot of Matt's listed movies with Matt, um, so I guess his top ten list very similar to mine. Probably I really did love Under the Skin, and oh, and I love Lucy. Too. Yeah, Lucy great. I- yeah, you oh, Lucy was so good. Yeah, that was one of my favorites. Kyle, top three. If because you, you're that person who's actually seen movies and could go into them, so top three movies of the year. Um, if you say Francis Ha, I'm kicking you off this call. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is another Noah Baumbach film that I could mention, but I'm not going. to. That's not Francis Ha. So I know. Um, so my top three. 
Um, I'll say number three is We Are the Best by Lucas Moodison, which is about these three adolescent girls who start a punk band in 1980s Sweden. It is absolutely delightful. It is on Netflix, and it is just very warmth. It's very warm. It is this very lovely film about this female friendship. And they're not very good um, as a band, but it's still just <laughs> it's just still very fun to watch them. Um, number two is uh, Los Angeles Nymphomaniac Director's Cut. You need to see the director's cut rather than the four-hour version. The full version is five and a half hours because um, they man they had to cut about ninety minutes from the international version version, um, and it sacrifices some of the ideas that um, Vonshire is trying to articulate. Um, and although much of Nymphomaniac still remains is this thing that he's kind of just throwing a bunch of things against the wall and seeing what sticks. I think it it succeeds much better in a, in its full form because you get that full vision. And there are a bunch of scenes that are cut out that are really critical to understanding kind of um, how he's provoking the audience this time around, how he's exploring um, these different vestiges of femininity and masculinity and sexuality. So that was that's a brutal film, but. Um, it was actually kind of fun watching it in theaters. I got to see it in New York um, right as the New York Film Festival ended. Um, and it actually feels shorter than the four-hour cut because you, it just seems more complete. So, Nymphomaniac. And then Is that my number... on Blu-ray? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But Oh, no, no problem. Um, I think it's coming out on Blu-ray within the next week or so. Oh, and I imagine it'll I'm... be put on Netflix relatively soon. I think I will finally version. watch that in that version the first time. Yeah, definitely. And I'd if like Nymphomaniac is over four hours long, please consult your doctor. <laughs> <laughs> then my my number one film, which I'm sure will be fighting words and will involve in some fisticuffs, is David Fincher's Gone Girl. Oh, controversial. Uh, I still haven't seen it. I'm not going to go see that. You missed I'm... the window to be invested in this discussion yep. and now can safely ignore it forever. Pretty much. I want to see it. I'm going to see it. I want to have a talk with Kyle about it eventually. I would be interested in having that talk with you. I've had some very interesting discussions with um, different people and how they um, have viewed the film or how, how they've interpreted the film, but I think there's so much material there that's really... Unlike... I think Nymphomaniac and Gone Girl are very similar in the way that they have a lot, uh, a lot of ideas in them. But I think, arguably, um, Gone Girl has them more fully formed than in, even Nymphomaniac. Even if Nymphomaniac has even it, a lot of stuff packed into it, but um, I just, I think it is. A, I think Gone Girl is about the conversation that has surrounded Gone Girl, which is why it makes it interesting. So, and it's also just a really slick, pulpy thriller, which is what I enjoy. Um, so okay, that's I, fair. Although I know there are people who don't particularly care for David Fincher, I do think that this is the collaboration between Fincher and Gillian Flynn makes it perhaps both of their masterpieces, especially Fincher's, given that he has a larger body of work in terms of film stuff. Um, but there's that. And then my honorable have mention. Have you read the book? I have not. Oh, okay. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Oh, no problem. And then um, my uh, honorable mention, which I feel obligated to say, is uh, Xavier Dolan's Mommy. Cool. cool. 
it's I'm not gonna we're not gonna have the gongle argument. We've done that probably, I assume. You can think what you think. And you can be wrong. I will. <laughs> I will enjoy being wrong. <laughs> it's a great way to be. Do you think it'll be one of those movies where if you rewatch it like two years from now you'll feel differently, or do you think Me? I know we we I know yeah, uh no, Jackson. No, I feel like I will, in two years from now someone will say Gone Girl and I'll go, Oh, Gone Girl, what was that? Oh yeah, that happened. <laughs> Just wondering. <laughs> like I already feel that the Gone Girl's conver- the amount of conversations around it has gone down to the point where it's kind of been forgotten. I disagree. Like, I didn't make I mean, you are deep in film, film, film land, so... I just think it depends on the circles you run in. Yeah, Yeah, it depends on the circles you run in, and I am friends with people who aren't film people who are talking about Gone Girl, so... Yeah, because I have friends that still love it, and I just think it just depends on the kind of person you are, and uh, how you felt about it, or the book, so... I don't know. I I think it's interesting, because I've talked to a bunch of... um, people who are self-identified female feminists and they've had very um, diverging views on it. And I think both of their perspectives are interesting. Yeah. And that's why I want to see it because I want to have I want to have that discussion because I feel like as a feminist who cares about movies I just think it's something I, I should uh, peek into and just see how I feel. Feel out my feelings. Feel out your feels. Oh yeah, All of the feels. Yeah. I care about that kind of stuff. I I'm always interested in a good art discussion. So, mm. yeah, nice. I have no idea what my best film of the year is. I have lots that I liked, but if you ask me to actually make a list, I don't know what I'd say. <laughs> like good films this year have been like. I liked Maleficent a lot. No one else did, but I, I liked it. Was it. Amazing. I liked so it. So good. So I'm good. I'm in the minority, but I like that. Oh, it's, it's the best. All my favorite favorite films from this year are ones that came out last year in America. Like what? Like, like Inside Lewin Davis, Wolf of Wall Street, and what have you. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Must suck so to be you. Did I mean yes, but not because of anything to do with films. <laughs> <laughs> Grand Budapest Hotel might be it, actually. I really loved Grand Budapest Hotel. I didn't care for that one as much as everyone else seems to love it. It's because it's just this straight farce. Uh, it's the funniest Wes Anderson movie by a long shot. Um, I'm much more of a Moonrise Kingdom, Rushmore kind of person. Me too. I, Rushmore's, I love Rushmore and will always love Rushmore in a very I was 18 and it was the perfect movie way. Uh, but Grand Budapest Hotel has exactly the kind of stuff that I want to see was Anderson making. Just a big middle finger to anyone who wants him to go, you know, less weird and Whimsical. stylistic. Yeah. yeah. It embraces it in this hilarious way that I don't think he had until this point. I, I love Grand Budapest Hotel. It's very... It has the best, the best cameo of the year, so you can't spoil that. Yeah, I need to see it. Very I, self-parody. Um... Mm-hmm. I'm glad. I'm glad he can self-parody because I actually really like. I think there should be more stylistic, indulgent directors. Yeah. Then you would love Xavier sure. Dolan, and you should watch his movies. I've seen oh the one with the friends that fall in love with the same guy. Heartbeats or Le Ma- Le yes. Amour Imaginaire, which is my favorite. Of yeah. His. 
I really liked that. I thought it was really, really funny, and um, it reminded me a lot of my own life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I really like his stuff. He makes me feel inadequate because I uh, have not accomplished nearly enough as he has at such a young age. I know, I hate him. <laughs> and he's attractive. He's the worst. Yeah, About he's really cute. Heartbeats is the one that everyone hates, and I'm like, why? Heartbeats t- makes total sense. It's the only one I've seen, but I, I liked it a lot. I saw it quite some time ago. It was on Netflix streaming, and I mean, it still might be. It but still I, is. I like him a lot. I think he's an important voice. Yeah, and I'm inter- very interested in him as a director because of the fact that he makes queer, not queer films. Right, like not the typical sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, can I make an extra recommendation? Sure. Always. Okay. There's a film that is on VOD, I think, called um, The Heart Machine by Zachary Wygon. I don't know. I don't think I've mentioned it, but um, it's <clears throat> it's ostensibly about these two people who are in a long-distance relationship. Um, they met kind of via Skype, and um, one lives in uh, Brooklyn, and the other one lives ostensibly in East Berlin. And she's American, though. Um, and he begins to suspect that she doesn't actually live in Berlin after he hears, like, this siren that sounds more like an American ambulance than a German ambulance. And he starts becoming very paranoid. And it kind of turns into the conversation meets her. And I think what's interesting about it is that it's kind of better than her i mean it it positions itself as the very cynical version of her at the opposite end of the spectrum that her is but it gradually kind of meets its way to the middle where the two kind of intersect because they're both very much about the same things kind of asking what are relationships what what does authenticity mean um, how does that play into relationships? What, how does one validate those kinds of feelings? Those kinds of questions that her very much asked, um, especially regards of, regarding that intangibility. And because the heart machine isn't kind of caught up with the sentimentality that her is, um, it's able to be much more straightforward and just ask those questions. Not uh, knock against her by any means, because her was my favorite from last year, and I think that film is very good at addressing other subjects as well that The Heart Machine doesn't, but I think um, The Heart Machine is still a really interesting and timely examination of what those concepts mean to us. I'm going to have to see it. Yeah, I might check that out. So, that's our amazing end-of-year roundup high-five everyone for being very (laughs) on the ball. I just, you know, life gets away from you when you have too many mm-hmm. podcasts and video mm-hmm. games. And uh, I wish I had seen more movies. I'm super glad we have Kyle here just to yeah. kind of make us Balance look more out. professional by proxy. <laughs> yeah, I I used to be like, the last couple of years I was the person who went and saw everything. No longer. Yeah, uh, same. In fact, I, I prefer the more relaxed movie approach. I have gone to the cinema a lot. Like compared to a normal person, but I've enjoyed almost everything I've seen. That's good. Uh, Any worst uh, of lists for anyone? Yeah, but mine would just be Amazing Spider-Man Two and Boyhood, and I don't want to get into. Oh, I hate Boyhood. I hate Boyhood. I haven't seen it, and uh, I know that one was mixed all over the board. 
most people seem to love it, and every time it ends up on a bestseller list, I kind of just roll my eyes. I, mean, I, I I understand it, so I don't roll my eyes, but it just makes me very sad, because the reasons I find that movie uh, off-putting are very personal, they're to do with the way the movie expresses what it's about, and it comes from this like place of privilege and lack of self-awareness, which I think is strange for a Richard Linklater film. Uh, and the fact that more um, critics weren't aware of that, or at least didn't consider that to be a problem, bums me out a bit. Was there any sort of, like... What about, like, appreciating just the experiment in and of itself for you? Was that there? I mean, I, they, he sure did grow up. <laughs> at the start, they were playing Blink-182 songs, and at the end, they were playing Travis Barker remixes of Soldier Boy. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I had... Yeah. I admire it as an experiment, but only as that. Okay, I didn't know if it deserved more or less credit on that end. I can. Yeah, I, think... I like the I like the fact that it did the experiment. I would like to see more films play with time in that way. But what I think but... is funny that everyone is lauding this film in terms of how it plays with time and transience is that he that Richard Linklater has done it better using the before trilogy. That makes much more sense. Mm-hmm. When you watch I agree. It, when you watch the three films as one one product as one as one work, and it does and it also without the oh. it oh sorry no I was gonna say Truffaut when he did you know he had four hundred blows he used the same actor playing the same character over a series of movies I don't see how it's I mean I see how it's different from that but like th- let's not forget that you know yeah. It doesn't really add up to anything. Like, the spectacle isn't interesting enough on its own because it's three hours fucking long. Um, and it doesn't follow the interesting characters. Like, the boy is boring. Yes, the boy if is it was, very if it was the story, If it was the story of Patricia Arquette, it would be a great movie. If it was yeah. Momhood, I'd be there. And there's a bunch of contrivances with, regarding his character that don't make sense. Like His character doesn't make any sense. He's a very inconsistent character. But everyone's inconsistent, Jackson. That's what boyhoodness is. Because he starts. Because oh, I'm going to get into boyhood, I guess. But he starts, and he's apparently this kind of like troubled, distant kid, right? He's this boy who struggles connecting with other people. He doesn't fit in. He's kind of picked on at school. He doesn't. He's just kind of bumbling through the world. Uh, which I related to a lot because that's how it was like me in elementary school, whatever. And there's just something different about this kid. And I'm like, okay, they're going to examine that. Is it going to examine growing up? being different and that and then it just drops that halfway and well then the the movie gets into his like traumatic childhood and like stepfathers being awful and having to move and stuff and a lot of stuff happens to this kid in the first half of the movie and then the second half of the movie he's just normal teen kids and none of his character development plays into his later self he doesn't have he doesn't we never see him work through any emotional issues we never actually see him grow up it's a coming-of-age movie where no one grows up, where they just are older, and they are different, and it never engages with how or why that has happened, and I consider that to be a huge failing on Boyhood's part. Although I okay. question to what degree would that be the point. Mm-hmm. Because that's that is going to be a big spoiler, because... but the way the movie ends, it's entirely the point. But uh, For some reason, I'm playing Devil's Advocate for a movie that I don't like. Yeah. Um, oh, you don't have to do that. <laughs> but it's, I, I think it's a sensible purpose is to completely eschew that 
traditional narrative trajectory where you have to see him work through something and it ends up being very unsatisfying and that's why I don't particularly like it but I suppose it succeeds on, succeeds on that level but, 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 but pl- you do have a point in terms of the character development not making sense but I don't agree mm-hmm. with you in terms of having needing to see the working through I mean but the movie is about that I, like the way that movie ends the way the, the like when they are wrapping it up and stating the themes it ends on this note of oh you just kind of have to go with it you have to do what you can and let life happen to you uh and so they keep saying like there's, no, there's not going to be someone holding barriers on you life doesn't have barriers is what uh ethan hawk says to the kid and yet the movie like is the barriers the movie ensures that everything good happens to him or everything happens to him is within this narrow spectrum and we don't see the how and whys of any of it we don't actually see the consequences or the emotional you know it's just everything is taken as given uh he gets to college because he gets to college he gets a job because he gets a job he gets this because and it doesn't like go into the interesting part which is how that affects you as a person i get i don't know how you can make a film about growing up with it with andy i get why it would be definitely unsatisfying and i agree with you not having not getting to see those consequences of what goes into that but it's, but Linklater is just kind of dropping you in these random memories and just kind of assembling this this scrapbook someone said, um, and I guess it makes sense within that context. But I don't think that it makes for a very good film. No, and the themes are when they like state the themes, they are directly opposed to what the film actually is. So that's that's why I don't like Boyhood. Very understandable, and mostly I agree. My worst movies of the year, if I may. Yes. Sure, go ahead. My worst movies are The Monuments Men, which I saw on a date. And the dinner was the best part of the date. Because The Monuments Men <sighs> is just so horribly disappointing. It's like not even really, really bad. It just seems to be so underwhelming that I would want to fall asleep during it. There's that. There's The Normal Heart, which is which is based on a Larry Kramer play. It was directed by Ryan Murphy for HBO. It was the whitest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so it's directed by Ryan Murphy. So. There is lit- yep. there is one. Aside from Julia Roberts, there is one woman in the cast, and she is supposed to represent all lesbians who were involved in the fight against AIDS in the nineteen eighties. Oh no! And that is just it isn't. <laughs> I find it more problematic because of, of what it represents politically and as a historical document than I do as a film in and of itself. Because of, as a film in and of itself, it is um, not unpleasant. It is very, very dramatic and very shouty, and it does technically what it needs to. But um, the kind of the political ramifications of that, I kind of debated. I read this piece for IndieWire's Bent, kind of asking what will this be? What kind of legacy will this um, telefilm have? Because this is a part of history that I think is really important, especially for queer people, and it's being forgotten. Because like when it was premiering, like no one I knew was talking about it um, outside of the film people that I talked to. Because I have a relatively, I don't have that many queer friends, but the ones that I do seemed to not care, and the people who do were only theater people. So it's like, how is this going to? play in terms of being a, a historical dramatization of an important part of history um, and if it does have a good legacy is that a good thing 
is it kind of a take a I'll take what I can get kind of thing where at least it's a representation of that era in a, in a dramatic format or is it more problematic than that because of the fact that it seems to exclude a lot of people who were involved in that movement and oh never settle for scraps yeah well i i i'm a tend to be kind of a baby steps kind of person to some degree depending on the subject but it's a very very frustrating work and did you see um how to survive a plague yes how to survive a plague is amazing and is the thing that you should watch instead of the normal heart unless you want to see yeah and even that movie had problems in my opinion really Oh yeah, I mean it's super white. I think there are um, it's less it is less white than the normal heart. It it's it's super white though. That still doesn't say, you know what I mean? And also it, yeah, it doesn't really feature women in any major capacity, which is kind of understandable, but like there were still women involved. And um the best thing about it is that it sort of shows that the problem isn't over and it isn't uh, they they extend it from being just like this thing that happened in America to showing like hey there's still a fight worldwide and people should do what they I, like I love that that movie ends with a push for advocacy mm-hmm. that's my favorite favorite thing about it and I wish more movies about subjects like that did that but other like it it still had its problems right yeah so that's that um, telefilm was very troubling. And then there was America, Imagine the World Without Her, which is by conserv- conservative Dinesh D'Souza, which is just so laughably stupid. It's What was that? It's a documentary about uh, directed by the guy who did Obama 2016. Or oh, no. Obama's America. Or, I don't know. It was very stupid, but it's kind of, the, kind of, it's the kind of thing you should torrent and then watch while drunk. <laughs> Um, because it basically uses um, uh, the people's history of the United States by what's his name again? Howard Zinn. Zinn by Howard, Howard Zinn. Zinn, and uses that kind of as a jumping-off point to refute everything Zinn posits in that book, and it does so in the most ludicrous way. And then my number one worst film of the year is a film called *The Man on Her Mind*, which is horrible. It's just so bad it's basically a dumbed down version of the one i love which was with mark duplass and elizabeth moss so instead of watching the man on her mind which no one will probably ever see because it's a tiny tiny feature that no one cares about rightfully so um (laughs) you should watch the one i love which is a delightful um a delightful little film kind of laced with some melancholy but yeah most of these films i saw by screener thank god Cool. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Matt, any best, uh, or best, not best, worst of? Worst? Worst, huh? What's the Just worst movie I awful. saw this year? Released this year, yes. Yes, released this year. <sighs> That's so hard to say. Because I saw so few. The thing is, at this point, I self-select movies a lot, so everything I'm going to see, I'm mm-hmm. probably interested in. You saw Need for Speed? Need for Speed is probably the worst, but I enjoyed it a decent amount. Yes. It was mm-hmm. fun. I thought it was fun. Like, it was but, terrible, but, when but I look we at, knew it was going to be when terrible. When I look at the list, it's the one that I, like, had the least enthusiasm for. I'm trying to think of something that was boring that I saw, but even the mediocre, or excuse me, even the, like, ones that I kind of knew in knew going in that they were going to be bad, I still kind of had fun. Even Oculus. So... Mm-hmm. 
Um, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I, I could not give you one answer. I just thought I'd ask. Well, I only I saw I saw two movies that I kind of knew were going to be bad going in this year, and that was it. Maybe three, but I've been self-selecting as well. Yeah, Me- boring movies are the worst. I try to stay away now. It's a good life. Yep, yep. good life. So, what's the? Let's quick quickly move on. Just have a quick. Anyone see anything good recently? Anyone see a film? I saw Mockingjay, and it was great. Um, I like that those movies are gritty, but they're not eye-rolly gritty. Um, I barely remember what happened in, what was the other one, Catching Fire? (laughs) They argued a lot. Nothing. They argued a lot. (laughs) They argued about stuff. It was great. What was interesting about this movie is, like, there are so many, like... I don't even know if they're intentional references to current events or just things that remind me of historical events. And I mean, a lot of it is intentional. I guess that that was a dumb thing to say. But like, it was weird to be entertained by something that was just a lot of death and destruction and sadness. Um, I really like Katniss's character development. They're really like, I, I know a lot of my friends that liked the books and hated the books they didn't like this book specifically had a lot of issues with how her like romance kind of being torn between two guys uh Peta and gail like those things weren't handled the best according to some of my friends but i thought the movie did a really good job in making that make sense like why she would kind of love both of these guys in different ways and the, the movie also did a good job of like not making that the focal point of the movies um, I don't know. I I really enjoyed it. As a fan of the books, who also thinks the movies are pretty great, I think these are like some of the best, pretty straightforward adaptations of young adult fiction I've seen. Uh, they take the good parts and like elevate them, and for the most part, especially in this l- latest movie, they like totally uh, get rid of the bad parts. The only problem the movies have is I think the games part is bad in both of the previous movies. Yes. And it was kind of the highlight of the books, but um, the parts that like are emotionally most important, the movies have doubled down on, mostly through really great casting, uh, like just That's great true. performances across the board. But um, yeah, I like that movie a lot. They continue to surprise me with how willing they are to commit to taking this vision of these books that maybe is not the most like, like it's not cheery holiday entertainment and just riding it all the way into the ground. As, as I I feel they should they should be obligated to do that, but I could see a version of this that is way softer and way more focused on uh, like a dumb love triangle that doesn't actually exist in those books. No, because the way they justify the love triangle here is it's it, it's barely a love story. No, even though she wants to rescue this guy, it was like this guy was in a thing. I feel guilty. Also, I want people who went through the same thing that I went through. I can't relate to other right. people. Is yeah, it, the way they played it, and yep. that. And, is really important to me because that's the kind of narrative you don't really see in any story, let alone a young adult story. Yeah, um, like it wasn't. It wasn't about which one she liked more because she wasn't even capable of that anymore. It's like I need these persons to fulfill my emotional needs. I need to be understood. I need to feel human. It, it came from this very desperate place that didn't feel like a unearned love triangle at all. Right, and I usually like get really exhausted with love triangles and i 
Um, I feel like these are just, um, like, the characters are just so well handled, like, everything. Um, yeah. It's always sort of um, awe-inspiring, because I always expect, going in, I'm always like, oh, this is going to be dumb, because it's this big franchise, and then I come out just surprised and satisfied. It's a great feeling. Well, I went into the first one and didn't know what to expect. Really liked the first half, really didn't like the second half. Mm. Uh, I went to the second one, really, really liked the first half, and was like, uh, I could have done more with the second half. And this is just the first half, so it's the <laughs> right. best Hunger Games movie. <laughs> and they don't have any more games, so I'm pretty excited for the second half. Right, exactly. Like, being away from the games is exciting. Yeah, I just oh. want... Philip Seymour Hoffman as evil alternate universe Josh <laughs> and weird propaganda stuff. It's great. It's good. We should I, all go uh, see Hunger Games. It's a shame he's gone. Cause Damn it, straight. It, 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 I felt his loss watching that. Like, er, ugh, I miss that dude. You, yeah. Yeah. Enough said. Yeah. Matt, um, what decisions did you make? I watched uh, My Little Pony Equestria Girls. Oh, how is that? <laughs> which is the uh, spinoff of My Little Pony Friendship of Magic, which is the show uh, created by Lauren Foss, like the revamp of My Little Pony, which was a series of Hasbro toys in the 80s and had a show associated with it. Equestria Girls takes all of the ponies and thrusts them into like a high school setting where they're all, well, one of them is transformed into a human, but there's human analogs of all the main characters of that show. This sounds terrifying. And it is made... Wait. Wait, what? Are the... So the other characters. No, okay, aren't so the villain, really the... the villain steals Twilight Sparkle's crown that has her element of harmony in it, and then Twilight Sparkle has to jump through this portal on a very strict time limit of she has like two days to get into this other world, get the crown, and come back out, or she's like sealed in there forever. And in this world, everyone's human, and she's the only one who's like yeah, transformed into a human once she goes there. Her and Spike, ah. I guess. So does everyone else know her? No. So they're just those characters from a different universe. Yes. The same like, characters. So part of this, like, one of the problems of this movie is it has to spend about 20 minutes of its 80, like, re-getting this group back together. Because these characters, like, they have prior relationships, but, like, you're essentially reintroducing all these characters in this new context. Mm-hmm. And that part's not cool. But more specifically, My Little Pony is, like, this... Like, aside from the brony stuff, which is not worth getting into because fuck those people, um, is a show that is, like, predicated on taking the ideas of, like, a kid's show about, like, sharing and friendship and uh, self-identity and, like, putting them in this really well-explored territory because it's abstracted through, hey, look, they're all horses running around. Isn't that cute and funny? When you take that away and ground it in something more... Uh, like more traditional, you get all of the baggage of a high school thing. Like suddenly, like the, these girls who were princesses or like running their own like tailor shop or like running the family farm are students and they're in cliques. And all of a sudden, there's like boys and love interests, which I don't feel like the show had much of beforehand. And it just takes it out of all of the specialness and p- grounds it in this kind of samey, just another one of these animated high school shows i mean there's not that many of them but there's enough that it doesn't feel special anymore especially since by creating these characters into these like bratz doll style designs like it's clearly made to sell dolls that you can dress up so they can sell outfits 
but it erases the ability to read yourself into characters. Uh, one of the interesting things about that show is people often have like very specific reads like Twilight Sparkle. The main character is often seen by people as black or there are characters that are seen as queer characters or whatever, because you can project yourself onto like a horse, an animated horse character. And when you take that away and they're just these cookie cutter, like every girl looks like the same template that they colored differently and dressed up differently. Like it just erases all of that. And they're just boring Barbie doll kind of like knockoffs. Uh, it like, and the problem is it's actually just a fine, fun, frivolous little movie. If it was just a My Little Pony movie, it'd be fine. But instead, it's also this other thing with all these other uh, hanger-ons. And like I was, I just was mostly voraciously disappointed that they went in this direction with it. It seems really cynical. Mm-hmm. That's a shame. Mm-hmm. Glad, glad you found out. Glad you assuaged your curiosity. <laughs> yep. Doesn't doesn't our friend Callum like that show, or that movie, or something? It's the first one, right? Yes. He thinks that one is severely flawed. Oh. He thinks the second one is a lot better. Okay, okay. I might want to talk with him at some point about that. I'll hook you two up to talk. If you want to talk about My Little Pony with Callum, be careful what you wrote. <laughs> um, Callum, don't people who don't know Callum. Callum's cool. He's not a brony. He just likes that show. Uh, but yes. Uh, what did I? I watched Snowpiercer yesterday. Has anyone anyone seen Snowpiercer? No, I have. What What did you think of Snowpiercer? I thought it was very entertaining, and I actually think it's a lot more complex than people give it credit for. I think it's very um, uh, ham-fisted kind of uh, politics and class discourse is actually there to distract from other things it's talking about, like. Narrative momentum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all I have to say about it. Okay. Yeah, I liked it. I think it's great. And I love Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton is so good. So Tilda Swinton shows up, and she's some ridiculous Yorkshire Margaret, Margaret Thatcher character. <laughs> and I was like, I was expecting this to be the grim... Because everyone had talked about it in this way of, like, it's really, like, new and gritty and original and just a really hard movie. And I was like, okay, I'll watch this. It was hilarious, and it was silly, and it was ridiculous uh, in a way that I was not expecting, but clearly should have because of who directed it. I was like, of course it is. Of course it's just nonsense to the highest order. Of course these guys are going to dip their axes in fish blood before they fight anyone for no reason! Because uh, it's the best. Oh, I need to see this. You should watch... Snowpiercer. I I thought in terms of like its politics and stuff, I thought it was very ham-fisted and what have you, but that was part of its charm. It was this very simple, obvious parable uh, that they committed to, that they played fully straight, and just wrote it out. Like it wasn't aiming to be complex. I didn't think anything about it was trying to be ridiculously nuanced. I think it was meant to be a simple easy to understand thing. I think it's a very accessible movie. It's no wonder everyone's gone, oh, this is a really uh, original, amazing, different thing. Because what it actually is is a very simple, classical, popular movie, but directed a little differently. That's all it is. Uh... And I, that's all it tries to be, <laughs> and it's great. Uh... Are you going to rebut me? Or are you just going to go, ah? Uh... <laughs> Okay, so I would need to rewatch it, but I remember when I saw it, I was like, there's something else here. Other, underneath that, the kind of ridiculousness that you're talking about, the classic, the very classical, um, 
parable regarding class. Um, wow, I'm sounding redundant today. I apologize to the audience. But I remember specifically thinking there's something else here, and I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to articulate it, but there was something much more nuanced and interesting Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a different reading, and I don't remember what it was because it's been because I I haven't seen it since August. Okay. Um, but yeah. I recall I recall that it was that it was using this discourse on class to distract from other things it was talking about, and I wish I remember <laughs> what it was that I thought it was talking about, but I don't because it's been a long year. I. I took it at uh, super surface level, but enjoyed it on that level. Uh, I'm sure there is other stuff going on, but yeah, that's how I... Enjoy- the one thought I had, which was completely, uh, barely relevant to the quality of the movie, but it came from watching this and Hunger Games in a short period of time, is I, I understand why it's come this way, but I don't know how much I agree with or think the uh, linking of... So you have this society that's extravagant and these people that are exploited, right? This is a a class parable in a bunch of movies, but always the upper-class society has this ridiculous fashion. Like, the fashion is the most ridiculous thing. They're wearing extravagant, fancy things to show how tasteless and out-of-control they are, right? And I don't know how much... I, I was watching this thinking, the people who belong super exploitative classes usually addressed the most boring. <laughs> like, I, I suddenly realized that the linking of fashion as this extravagance is probably really shitty! Uh, calling it a bad thing for society, because it's probably in a bunch of other tropes. I didn't have time to examine this, but I just thought maybe all movies should try a different tact with that. I want to say specifically that uh, Mockingjay, I think, uh, and this is the thing that splitting it up uh, hurts the themes, but the kind of socialist militarism of District mm-hmm. 13 is seen as equally as harmful and toxic as like yes. the overreaching fascism of the capital. The people, the people, like the citizens of the capital, almost never depicted as anything but like misguided but well-meaning people mm-hmm. in that in that I series. Said- Wait, did you think I said fascism? No, but I'm just saying, like, this idea that, like, the capital, like, as this high fashion, but that these are the bad guys. Like, I don't think the people of the capital are often depicted as bad people in that series. It's just the people in power. Hmm. I mean, you're definitely right. But also, I feel like it is explicitly, I've only seen part one, but it is explicitly making clear that the social, socialist militarism of the District 13 comes from people in the capital. Like the people in charge of District 13 are people who were in power, just not all the way in power. They are still part of that system and it's not a new system. Sure, but I think the actual message of those as like social commentary is you can't be these extremes when normal people are suffering at the whims of your privilege. Yeah. Whether it's I have all the guns or I have all the money. Like if other people are just like in the coal mines like you should you should at least be aware of your station the crime that everyone in the capital commits is they're ignorant mhm and that's yep. partially the culture and partially willfully like they're just like lost children for the most part like that's how they're depicted that's how Effie's predicted uh, uh, depicted in those entire depicted, series yeah. mhm cuz i just i just thought it was strange that or well, not strange but like deliberate when the entire board of 
the people who are working this revolution were people who were in the first movie bad guys essentially not everyone but sure most of them but and also like yeah. if you look at the stuff in district 13 like it evokes the kind of like huge masses of working class stuff that you see in things like metropolis like just armies yes. of workers in jumpsuits doing things mm-hmm. like it's meant to be horrifying even though these are the like the people oh, yeah. who are supposed quote unquote the heroes that are going to deliver us from the bad guys there's it the scene where fidel castro mm-hmm. cuz there's the scene where they give the announcement and they just start doing that military cheering mm-hmm. and it's just chilling yeah oh yeah you're not supposed to trust them no i wonder how this will go next time i wonder if this will be a happy ending for all I don't expect one. I don't. I don't know. People who have read the books know, but I. I don't expect one. I haven't read the books or seen the movies. Really? These are totally worth your time. You should watch the movies, Kyle. It's not out of any particular prejudice against them. It's just, um, I told myself I was going to read the books during high school, and then I just never did. The books will like if you're a reasonably decent reader, the books will take you like four days to read all of them. That's how long it took me. And- they they are short, pacey, pro- young adult action books. It probably should, but, like, this weird thing happened to me in high school where I started reading nonfiction in my free time as opposed to fiction because I was reading fiction for school. And every time I tried to read fiction outside of school, I would fall asleep. And I always, a, I, always deprogram your association of school to things yep, as a bad that's thing. A thing. That's like, a thing everyone has to unlearn, I think. Because it happens to so many people in about so many things that this is a school thing and school is boring, which is true. School it wasn't. Is it wasn't intentional because I like reading fiction. No, yeah, just I like reading for school. I liked reading for school. <laughs> I know, but like, I know most people, most people, like the people who didn't or like associate reading fiction specifically with school, you have to unlearn those kind of things. Oh, totally. I, I don't disagree. Like I had to unlearn. Yeah. Like I thought I didn't like history or science. It turns out I actually do. I just hate the way they're presented in school. But I had to unlearn. Yeah, that. I have that. I have that exact problem. So yeah, I can't argue. I yeah. just wanted to pipe up that I liked reading in school. <laughs> oh, so did I. Any? Yeah, I like. I liked reading in school as well. Not like I, there were bits where I was like, "Oh, this is boring and taught terribly." When you have a, the best thing is when you have a good English teacher and then you realize, "Oh, fucking reading." Yeah, sure. well, like I've read books that I've hated that teachers talked me into liking. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, Totally. I just want to go back to school, but have it not be shit. That doesn't exist. <laughs> oh, don't do this to me, Matt. You can just learn to any... teach yourself. I know, but that's not what I want. I want my last 20 years of my life back. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, not everybody you, can you learned lessons from the last 20 years of your life, though. Don't 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 make them out to be actually worthless. They're not. You're, you're right. Uh, but you know what I mean. Anyway, not to go on this... Uh, Anti yet very pro education tirade. <laughs> um, Kyle, is there anything you want to bring up before we get into the movie of the week? Month? Um, Shit, every time. Oh, I'm sorry. You're so sad. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to mention the fact that I watched the remake of The Vanishing because that's not worth it. You just mentioning. did. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jackson. No problem. Anytime. But I, but I will say. <laughs> I will talk. I want to talk about James Bond very briefly, because okay. I rewatched Casino Royale and Skyfall, and they still are just so solid, and so so great. Yep. I got into a debate with someone, with a uh, Kristen Sales uh-huh. at Sales on Film on Twitter. She's awesome, um, and she doesn't like Skyfall, so we kind of went back and forth on that. And she 
just likes the fact that the film is so self-serious and she said that it was the quote-unquote nolanization of james bond and it's like what does that really mean and so the at 3 a.m on thanksgiving i was like huh i'm gonna unpack this so i decided to write about it and then there's a press conference for um the new james bond film bond 24 specter and the atlantic published a thing called the batmanization of james bond i was like <laughs> are you f- kidding me I don't wow. think I don't think Skyfall is more self serious than most James Bond movies. I I think it's I, I think it's presented in artier way and people read it. That movie is goofy. It is. It's really goofy. Like what? That movie, that movie ends with the train crashing into like this giant like like it has that sequence where the train crashes into like that. Uh, <laughs> what is it? Like grand jury trial or whatever. The train doesn't no. crash into it. Doesn't it? The train crashes underground. Right. Kicking yeah. Bond out. And I don't, he, okay. well, he walks up in a policeman's I, uniform and just shoots everyone. Okay, I don't disagree that the scenarios in and of themselves are less goofy or that the script is less bad I mean, than any other James Bond to film. Be fair, because I think it's really funny that everyone complains about the, sc- the screenplay too. To, to, um, Skyfall and Thor. To be fair, I just before you start, I want to point out that I also think Nolan's Batman movies are super goofy. Okay. Ditto. Yes. Yeah, sure. Okay, anyway. Okay. Anyway, I, I also don't think... I, I think it's really funny when people accuse Skyfall of having a stupid screenplay or the third act being dumb. And I was like, have you watched the rest of the James Bond series? I think the difference... Uh, I think um, Matt is correct in saying that it's the difference in presentation. And the presentation is artier and self-serious. I don't think the material in and of itself is more self-serious. But I think the the presentation is although i would kind of argue that the in my essay that the um that the direction that they're taking the char- character in the direction specifically is more self-serious i mean because they're i like i wouldn't even say so i it has theme in a way that most bond movies don't have like from rush with love has theme for honor majesty right. secret service has theme golden eye kind of has yes. theme and that's it yes Yes. Like those are movies that are uh, mostly can like satisfied with set pieces, not with theme. And by introducing right. theme into James Bond, you're going to give it weight that it didn't have before. Yeah. But weight and doesn't I, necessarily that, equal seriousness. I wouldn't even call it seriousness. No. I would just call it an earnestness. There is an earnestness to Sky. The fucking yeah. Aston Martin shows up in that garage. That is not serious. I think I've always hated that part, and I always hate when they have to bring the DB5 back because I always think that was that's kind of like dumb fan pattern. Yeah, but, but it's I the think dumbest no, 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 but no, but I think the films that that Matt mentions one are the mm-hmm. best Bond films. Yeah, absolutely. In the in, in the franchise because they're just good films and because they do have weight to them, and I think weight does equate to some degree as seriousness because it's taking its character serious seriously. It's taking the scenarios. That the character is embroiled in seriously because they seem to have actual ramifications within the context of that. I universe. don't. I don't think. I think daring. I think daring a... to invest like thematic weight into your characters it often is seen as seriousness because we hold dramas more important than things that aren't dramas. But I don't think that's necessarily true. You know what has a lot of theme? Fast and Furious movies. You know what? They are not serious in the least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't. They... I don't actually know what serious means as like a, that in and of itself it doesn't mean anything you're kind of right 
like I I think so like the self-seriousness that Skyfall's accused of is like yes. in a grim and gritty sort of way. I, know, I, know, I don't think I those know movies what people are, bad. are implying. I know what people are implying, but I feel like that as a criticism doesn't hold any weight and doesn't really get to even to the heart of what they're trying to criticize. Mm-hmm. It's a very surface level. This is too serious. If you think, if you think, the, if if that, if the actual thing you're criticizing is this movie isn't fun enough as the Bond movies I remember as a kid, you're right. It's not as like cartoonish on the face of it. I'll totally agree. Die another day has yeah. a giant space laser that melts ice. Like it's the worst. <laughs> and an invisible car. Yeah, I rewatched that recently, and it's terrible. But don't even do anything with the invisible car. Oh, the fencing. He just oh, runs out God. of thing and is like, "Let's draw blood." I need to see more Bond movies. I've now only you know. seen I'm, the Daniel Craig gonna, ones. You have actual movies to, to watch. You're fine. The Bond movies. I plan <laughs> on rewatching. I plan on rewatching the entire franchise because I'm one of those really weird Bond fans. That is has Doesn't been like Bond fans since I was sort of like I've been a Bond fan since I was seven, and I and I know the series very well, and I um, was obsessed with it as a child. But I when Casino Royale came out. I realized I don't actually like most of the James Bond movies. Oh, that's that'll do it. I prefer that. I prefer the thing. I prefer that that thing Matt is talking about, where there is weight to the character. That there, um, I guess we're gonna discard the word serious, but I, I like that they can be um, that they can be earnest mm-hmm. and that silliness isn't just i think what bothered me was the formula because the formula just got boring to me mm-hmm. so i like my favorite bond films are dr no from rush of love golden eye casino royale and skyfall because they all seem to at least um take them I, I want to use the word serious they take themselves seriously they just work as really good espionage films i would just say they invest i they don't invest like the silly character they They're invest their, in their character like, they treat they treat their character as if he is a person mm-hmm. like, as if it matters seriousness is a word about tone in this very vague way but investing in a character is a thing that those movies does that can be read negatively in a broad way but adds a, a level of you know stakes yeah. you care Every... about what happens to james bond when they actually invest in him as a human being I don't think it's invalid to say that they, that people prefer um, the older Bond films that they're silly and don't and um... sure. I just think they can articulate it in no, a different no, way. No, no, I yeah, I just I think it's very funny when people complain about the new films and that they aren't the way that they used to be. And I'm like, well, that's a I think a good thing. I think it's a good idea to take this character in another direction that has existed for over fifty years. I also think because yeah, I also think given the time frame Bond existed, this has always been cyclical. Like, it'll go back to yeah. being goofy again. It'll get serious again mm-hmm. as people age and new yeah. people take over. And I think it's important for these films to somehow reflect both what kind of films are being made, uh, the context of what films are being made within Hollywood and outside of Hollywood, as well as the political atmosphere that the films are being released in. Because they, they've always been kind of, like, weirdly tepid regarding that. Like, they sometimes are mirrors, but they have never invested in in them very seriously but the few films that that i do like seem to actually seem seem to actually consider that political atmosphere as an integral part of the narrative and of the environment within the film like i really love golden eyes kind of post-cold war paranoia what if it happens again Mm -hmm. what if we are again going to be in this uh mid-range thing with russia 
And then I also really love how Skyfall and Casino Royale work in tandem with one another, dealing with how um, this abstract notion of terrorism is changing and, and continuing to evolve. Yeah, I mean, but even like a lesser Bond movie like Tomorrow Never Dies has a lot to say about like the 24-hour oh, yeah. news media. cycle and yeah, like the rise of media as a like a corporate but political power. Mm-hmm. Like when they come up with their villains, they always tap into whatever the thing is at the time. Like that's just how they, that's how they come up with those plots. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, hey, sometimes even, they would not say all the even time. Even in Quantum of Solace, they were like, "Oh, what's what is there? Water. We'll go for Global water." Warming. Yeah, like that's what they do. I that's would say, how they come up with those stories. I would say sometimes because like the earlier Bond films didn't really do that. Because I still don't understand the part of Goldfinger. Goldfinger's just hey. well, Goldfinger's not a good movie. Yay! Yeah, you're not going to find anyone here who disagrees with that. <laughs> Everyone loves it. And I'm like that movie is shit. Watching it immediately after From Russia with Love, and I was very confused as to why people picked the wrong horse to be the Bond movie. Because it's the one that set up the formula. No, I know, but when you have so much better movie immediately before it, I'm... I shake my head. I shake because my head. What, because what people remember... I know that you're agreeing with me, I'm just reiterating, but mm-hmm. what people remember about the Bond films is the thing that Goldfinger created the blueprint for. And so that's why it's the best one. Quote, unquote. Yeah. Best one. Well, and I don't agree with that at all, because I think that is why I don't like the Bond films, because it set up this really annoying formula that didn't really um, mutate much. And also, I have a question for all of you who have yes. seen Bond films. I was talking to a friend at Thanksgiving, because I was also talking about the essay I'd written, and she doesn't like the newer Bond films because they take the, the pervasive sexism in, in them, which kind of comes with the territory, unfortunately, is taken more seriously and less fun in these newer Craig Bond films, is it better or worse that that is a thing? Is it better that in the older films that it was just very laughable and passable? Or is it I think worse? I think it probably needs to like have a reckoning with that stuff. But I think that's more a systemic Hollywood problem. Like the fact that Naomi Harris is not James Bond instead of James Bond's sidekick is ridiculous because she was the coolest part of the last movie. Damn right. But that's a Hollywood problem. You want to talk about the sexism inherent in Hollywood, that's fine. But like, even as early as Goldeneye, they were talking about James Bond as this character that is out of place and is jarring in a world that has like the ideas of feminism as a going concern mm-hmm. in terms of what culture is. Yeah, yeah. But in Skyfall, like, I can't remember the character's name, but there's that character he gets with earlier who then he just shoots, or the other guy shoots. And yeah. And the way that relationship is handled is one of the grossest things. And to a point where you think, okay, they're clearly aware of this because it is an obvious throwback and they treat this with like uh, a strange kind of earnestness um, for James Bond being this predatory person. Mm. But they don't examine that. But like Skyfall... The thing that Matt... Let me me, me finish my thought. The thing that Skyfall is most is this summation of how you get from Casino Royale, Daniel Craig Bond, which is very like post uh, born identity, new idea of what this kind of character is and bring it back to original Ian Fleming, James Bond. Like so much of that third act is about setting up this legacy of this idea of this character. And it's Mm -hmm. done because it is, it was like, it was an anniversary film, right? Wasn't it 50th anniversary? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I would like, like, I think it is, on them to take it somewhere else 
But I don't think the fact that that third act does that sort of stuff is inherently bad, especially since like a lot of people complain about how M was treated. M was given the most elaborate, oh, like invested that was an character arc. Yeah, like that movie is about her, mm-hmm. and she gets like all of these great moments. That it ends up that way is because Judy Dench is old and probably doesn't want to do action films anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I also think is what. I don't think the stuff in the third act, or the way it gets to that point, is a flaw of the movie. It could be a flaw of later movies. Yeah, but I think I think like do anything. I think if if your critiques are predicated on how that movie ends, I think it's a wait and see. I think it totally could be open to criticism. But this is also a problem of this. This is a series that is always in new hands. Like it's hard to have like a cohesive tone across like yeah. character like arcs, even in the various actors who play Bond. Like each movie is varied. It's- Self, they're usually self-contained, and they're. I would argue that the Bond series is, for the most part, anthological. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I, I think mentioning men is not men. M mentioning M <laughs> is important because the line you were talking about. She called Bond a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, and I'm wondering, um, what kind of tone or should that kind of sexism that's Inherent to both Hollywood as well as the James Bond franchise, what tone should that take? Should it be the lighter thing or the more serious thing? I think I think you should not play it off as oh James Bond a relic. Look at him be gross. Like that's not interesting anymore. Like that's that was passe like a decade ago. Like Mm -hmm. ironic sexism is not a thing that we should look for in our media, but. I think if you're going to actually invest, you have to come to terms with the character being that thing and then hand off the mm-hmm. reins to a different interpretation of the character that is something entirely different that clearly is not. And that would be a woman, James Bond. Oh, be so good. Jane Man. Bond. Nope. There is a... James Bond. <laughs> there is a series, there's a lesbian pulp fiction called Jane Bond. I should look that up. That sounds great. Kiss I'm the s- girls and make them die. Nice. Ah, <laughs> oh, whoever came up with that needs a raise. I don't care what the job they work. <laughs> I think good. also what is interesting about Skyfall is the way that um, there's that um, inference that James Bond has been uh, has had queer experiences. That's oh, a good for sure. Point. I read that essay where it was like he's sort of treated like a Bond girl in that movie, and. Uh, that was part of the argument was like uh kind of reinterpreting his style of masculinity was a really yes. uh milestone a big milestone for that film like an important mm-hmm. one that, that film brought forth absolutely that is the one of my favorite parts of the film ditto just having him say what makes it what makes you think it's my first time mm-hmm. and i love it how it makes audiences reevaluate how they perceive bond and how they perceive what masculinity means with regarding to bond mm-hmm. yeah so we've been talking about james bond for a long time i'm sorry yeah. for that i have oh, more I to say but this isn't a james bond episode uh, i think it's great yeah. that we even had this discussion like this is probably one of the best discussions we've had on it could podcast. go on for ages because fucking james bond there's a lot of it yeah there's a lot to to bring in but uh, this podcast can't go on forever, so we're going to go to a short break and come back with a talk about this month's movie, which is In the Loop. 
He's got a gun and great big man tits. He's got jug ears and tiny trunks. Then do the dench is furious with him. He's gone completely out to lunch. The quantum of the solace. quantum of solace. I don't know what that means. What does it mean? He's like a flashback in black and white. No more raised eyebrows, no more quips. He's got the stunting from the Bond films and lots of product sponsorship. The symptom of the symptom of qualis. Welcome to this one. Every time. You're good at this. You're better good at keep this. this in. Better keep this in. Well, I was going to keep it in, but then we had reference to it. It was just going to be me fuck. Oh, well, now I can't keep it in. That's what he said. Nah. I hate all of you <laughs> so much. Welcome. It flames on the side of your face. No, that, no, I was speaking deliberately and slowly. Flames on the side of your face is speaking fast-paced and being unable to control what you're saying. No, have you even seen Checkmate. that scene? Have you even seen she, that scene? Yeah, she can't get it out because she's like a beacon of anger. She's yeah, because like, she can't. Her emotions are in her face. Yeah, but she can't. Just she like, doesn't say it quickly. No, but she's speaking quickly. No, she's, she's not. Like, she can't no, get the words not. out no, quickly. No, we watched that scene. I have. I saw it like last week on a YouTube video and laughed my face off. Welcome to segment two. I would say she's speaking emphatically and not... Uh, ha! Ha! Quickly. Matt agrees with me. Ha! <laughs> this is a podcast, Dad the Arbitrator of Things. Well, kids, if you're not going to get along, we're going to turn this podcast right around and head home. I guess all of that was in. I guess you got your wish after all. This is segment two. We're talking about In the Loop. Hi. Well, we're not now, but we're going to. It was my <laughs> choice, so I'm going to enter it. In the Loop is a spin-off of The Thick of It, which is a British sitcom about the workings of government, directed by Amanda Inucci, uh, written by him and his crew, uh, which uh, him, Tony Roche, Simon something, and someone else. I don't know if Will Smith wrote this, but he might have. Uh, there's a different Will Smith. <laughs> <laughs> just letting you know 
But yeah, in the loop concerns itself uh, with essentially a dramatization of what happened before the Iraq War. Through, but they don't mention any specifics. It's the US and the UK trying to go to war in the Middle East, and it focuses on one minister named Simon Forrester and how he plays into all this. And we decided to watch that this month. And yeah, that's that's the intro for In the Loop. Everyone feel introduced. Yes. Good. You could argue that it's like the origin story to the thick of it. That's what. Yep. That's what Amanda Nietzsche said. Uh, that's uh, how he decided to do this for the movie because. It was that that gave him the idea for the thick of it, but then in the thick of it is way more small-scale British stuff. So the movie goes uh, all out here. So what did everyone think of In the Loop? You've all seen it. Who wants to jump in first? I will jump in first. Oh, Kyle, uh, Kyle go ahead. Kyle, Kyle with more enthusiasm. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. I didn't mean like that. I just meant like the way you said that. I'm like, oh, oh go ahead. Go ahead. I was. Kyle was also first. I was so excited when this film was picked if you couldn't hear my scream last episode uh, i did <laughs> yeah i'm sorry for that but not really this is one of my favorite films of all time um it is in- i think what i like about it is not only that it's incredibly witty but it shows the power of words and how meaningful and meaningless they can be cool I think that's a nice, concise way to describe the film. That was. I was expecting you to launch into it. Well, like, the one of the most disturbing things for me about this movie is how, yes, like, okay, he says, war is unforeseeable, and it sets off this chain of events that's insane. But then, like, there are just scenes of politicians taking really important, really pivotal documents and just changing the language in them. Like, it's nothing. Like, it's not the most fascist thing ever. Mm-hmm. Without a blink, without a pause to go, huh, should we be doing this? It just happens as if it's this given, and that that kind of one, like, it's nightmare fuel. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's a very scary movie. Oh, yeah, but it's it's also so funny. Just, I laughed the whole time. Mm-hmm. There's this to fa- say that there was Sorry. Oh, no, uh, just to say that there were so many disturbing uh, things happening, it was also super funny. Really great. There's this really fascinating episode of Radio Lab, which is a podcast that's, I believe, sponsored by NPR. And it's called 60 Words, and it's about these particular words that were um, included in the document released after 9-11. Yes! And it goes into what basically those words mean and why they were changed and whatnot and i think in the loop is very similar to that in the way that language is a really really um important thing in that film uh do you guys know what the dodgy dossier is in politics or is that just a british thing i don't know what it is okay so the stuff with them editing the document just making it up is a direct analog to a dossier that was produced as the justification for britain getting involved with the iraq war like that actually happened okay Uh, that reminds me a lot of the 60 words yeah definitely the 60 words was written as a justification for getting involved in iraq and also um cracking down on terrorism which is itself kind of a backwards idea because terrorism is an abstract idea yep yeah i think it's well matt what what did you think so i think in the loops a really funny movie 
Um, and it's often yeah. very clever. I think that as I've had more distance from it, I've cooled on it a lot. Um, I think the way it treats women is pretty reprehensible across the board. And mm-hmm. I think that its view of human nature is bleak and fatalistic to the point of irresponsibility when you're dealing with politics. Um, it's not, uh, like we definitely have problems with how politicians act, but this idea that you have like bearded, super ridiculous man running around changing the language of things like deliberately is like this almost mustache twirling villain. The actual problem with politics is that people do these things for reasons that they justify as good and not are these broad cartoon people. Mm-hmm. And like the way that it thinks about the world is like, I, I think reductive to the point that when you're dealing with things like, Oh, this is how people are going to process how this might've happened in the inner chambers of some sort of political system is ridiculous. And, uh, and I, I, I find it like repellent, especially like a character like Malcolm, who is like at parts like super villain and like the one guy that it seems like the movie like wants you to like laugh at the most. Like, I don't understand how you have both of those two things in a piece of media when given the things that he does, like he's a spineless manipulator who is ultimately subservient to like much bigger bad guys. Like, how is this a thing that you want to advocate as people like investing in? I don't know. Like I found it gross. I don't think you. Okay. So this essentially your problems, which I agree with all of them. Uh, I'll talk about the name of women, especially because I think that the thick of it, where this came out of started as very aware of its misogyny and then drifted into being thoroughly unaware of it. And this gross thing in, in names of, in the name of its comedy, uh, because I'll, I'll do that now, but at the start, the thick of it was uh, it was on a minister like that and his small-scale stuff, and generally the plots were he and his two... but This man-child and his two buddies coming up with irresponsible policies while the secretary is the only fucking person who knows what's going on and actually has responsibility. Um, and then by season three, which is when this film was occurred, that secretary had like been flanderized to the point of being the useless one and all the jokes that they made about her at the start were just presented as facts of her character. Uh, so I think In the Loop falls at a point where the writing team ceased to be aware of that stuff uh, and the writing was getting more and more broad. Um, but in terms of Malcolm's character, the reason he doesn't work anywhere near as well as In the Loop is because he is they lose the sense of purpose and good and evil like you say or justified or self-justified actions because what the thick of it, it presents is these people who are acting on behalf of their parties it is party politics it is we are doing this for the good of something bigger than us that is the motivating fact that is what defines Malcolm Tucker is he will do anything for the good of his party uh, and it is barely a human being but here, when removed from that and is just doing things that people above him tell him to do, it makes him seem all the more amoral uh, and a purposeless kind of amorality, which is less interesting and just sad and repellent, like you say. Like, I agree with that. I also think it's really easy to view, like, the people that make the decisions about war and policy and economy, it's really easy to kind of go, well, they just 
they're up their own butts and they don't uh like they're not competent enough to actually pull off anything other than that like that's a really easy point of view to hold and so the movie's flawed in that way but i also think it works in the sense of like a lot of the decisions that are being made like the people that make them aren't really connected to them in a real way like when i don't remember the name of what's his name the uh toby toby is that his name um but yeah he um like says at one point like i didn't go into politics to simon forrester yes yes simon he he says i didn't go into politics to go to war and he's gonna resign but then he like kind of chickens out over like something really petty and it's like i could totally see that happening and it, it seemed realistic to me where like ego gets in the way of principle because yeah. I think that's a lot of at least on the American end I think that's a lot of politics mm-hmm. anyone else going to jump in I think Malcolm Tucker, Tucker is kind of like a more profane and articulate Hans Lander yeah I, kinda sure. sure part of this is like the only thing I knew about this fra- like franchise, I guess, going into it is people posted all sorts of gifs of Malcolm, T- Malcolm Tucker like he was the cool guy who said all the cool things. He's not, no. And like, but people think that. I don't think they think that. Then why does why does that kind of fan base exist? Like everyone was excited when he was uh like cast as the doctor cuz like, oh, look at he's going to be cool and do all that stuff and like making jokes about that stuff, right? You Okay, so comedy is a thing off this this the trope of this is the bad person as the comic person, right? Like that is a trope in comedy, especially sure, British comedy. But nobody in this is good. No. And, like the few characters no. who might be defined as good are also painted as buffoons. Yes. Like, there like at the end of the day, the, the, the woman who runs the uh, I don't I don't know anybody's name. Judy. No, uh, the, the American. Oh, the American, yes, this, yeah, her. Uh, yeah. Is, like, the most noble character, but it's painted as, like, this sad, out-of-touch thing to be. Like, like the fact that she's the only one who could commit to actually resigning is seen as, like, this failing of her, I feel like. But I don't think yeah. the, like, I think the characters see it as a failing, but I don't think the movie, I think the movie wants you to kind of go, what the heck? Like, I re- I don't know, maybe that's just me. Like, no, I, I, you, you finish first. Well, I was just going to say, like, it's, I just think the movie itself, like, doesn't expect the viewer to be as cynical as the actual film. And maybe that's, maybe I was picking up some Doctor Strange love vibes that aren't exactly there, but that's how I read it. I, I mean, to be fair, I also don't like Doctor Strange love for kind of the same reasons. Oh, okay. I don't like Doctor Strange love either. But not for those reasons. You're both weirdos. I. <laughs> think that the reason her character comes across as uh, bad is because it's when their politics and trying to make this message about the futility of being hopeful in, in this world they've created intersects with the misogyny inherent in the writing. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, in that her weaknesses is just makes her like this pushover for all these men and they never invest in her character to the point where, like, they make jokes about her that you're meant to laugh at, take at face value, as well as saying she's a good thing. Like, it, there, the show walks this line as well, where sometimes you're laughing with and sometimes you're laughing at, and there's no consistency to the view 
of the comedy because they just put last first. Mm-hmm. Did you say committee? Uh, no, I said shut up. <laughs> said <laughs> said comedy. Uh, yeah, but um, sorry, I think it's uncritical in its comedy essentially mm-hmm. because it tries to have these themes and is having these themes, but will always put a laugh above all else, and then ends up slipping into really shitty tropes. This is also that's a good I think point. this is especially a problem in a movie that is from 2009 but about the politics of 2003 like if you're going to have the distance of time where all of the most of the things have been outed like be incisive like have something new to say like they're treading ground that's been well tried like this is like an a, like a an hour and a half SNL sketch in terms of how it plays its politics mhm yeah that's fair it, it's incredibly broad and centrist. And I just don't uh, think, I don't think that that's like a interesting thing to do if you're going to have a thing that's explicitly about international politics, especially, the internet, little... especially about the international politics of war, like taking this centrist, oh, aren't both sides weird and gross is, stance is awful. Like, I, I don't know how you can like invest in that as like a thing you feel good about. It, but it's specifically. Like, to take the other side, is portraying a criticism of the system, right? It's not saying there is a good side of the system, the system as a whole yeah. is uh, inherently... It's a mess. Because Malcolm's barely a character. Malcolm is an agent of the system and ensures that everything runs as well as it does. The point the film makes and the series is that political agency is something to be stamped out at all occasions by everyone and anyone um, because that's just what systemically they are engaging with uh, so like, I don't know how they are meant to pick a good side when their point is that there is a more deeper um, issue right but it's just it's like, so deeply buried like throwing up your hands and being like the system is broken is a fine like as an author of a piece is an, like you can have that point of view but I don't think then you get to just play the whole thing as like this farce and get away with it. I think if you're going to, if you're going to poke, if you're going to lampoon like the things that we all live under, I think you have to have a point of view and a thing to say that is meaningful. And I don't think the fatalism of, Oh, everyone's going to betray their morals when it's politically expedient is an interesting thing to say. Mm -hmm. But I think what it has to say about language might be a little bit more interesting and more incisive because you have all these characters who are, spitting out these lines which are very heightened and very stylized and in the end they both mean everything and they both mean and as well as nothing they're both they're weapons i think that's interesting i think it's interesting too i think that maybe not i think that idea is interesting i don't think the movie is actually about that very much like i think that's the plot but i don't think that's entirely like i don't think the theme is about that stuff at all i think the theme is something much more nihilistic and I also think having, you know, both like both the UK and the US have been embroiled in this thing for, I mean, by 2009, we had already been at war almost a decade, and we're still there. Um, there was this weird criticism when I was looking at the Wikipedia page for in the loop where it was like, I wonder how this movie will play out in the less cynical Obama years. And not realizing it was that. released in that window. Yeah. It was released in that five minute window. <laughs> yeah, where everybody felt really optimistic. And it's like, things are still <laughs> crap. And so I think it's totally okay to make a work that encapsulates that sort of frustration with how we're embroiled in this thing. And it seems like the people in charge 
didn't really you know think through the consequences of their actions and that's kind of like how the 60 words thing that radio lab thing that kyle brought up like it reminds me of all of that because it but, shows but that like why, everything's so knee-jerk why not be about those things then why obfuscate it in this story of this thing that doesn't exist like you could make a political comedy that's incisive and satirical but make it about the actual politics then why put this layer of oh it's about this one thing that doesn't really exist and these characters who don't exist doing these things that aren't real when you could actually talk about those 60 words and like how crazy it is that someone thought of that and thought it was an okay thing and you can get comedy out of that why not well, just think, double down on that stuff i think the movie is more about just sort of painting a picture of what they think the people behind these things are like but kyle's arguing that it's about how these words are important then why not use real words why not use the real things that brought us into this conflict it deliberately distances itself from everything. But if you're going to make a political comedy and you're going to distance yourself from real politics, that's spineless. Sure, but you have to I think... you have to admit that you are dealing with real world issues, and you have to take the responsibility for saying things about the real world issues at hand when you're going to talk about that stuff. But in what way is it not taking responsibility for that? If it's not using the actual Patriot Act or the actual what was the thing you were talking about, Jackson? Yeah, why not talk about those things? Why not have because they why not have actual animal? They legally can't like then they'd be sued for life. You can you can there is a no no you you can make jokes about the Patriot Act. That's not illegal. But they Uh, what I think they are still making jokes about the Patriot Act and the Dodgy Dossier without using those names. But they aren't even. I just aren't even using the language of those things. Sure, but I, I disagree that they have to be specifically about those. It's it's specifically about a point in time that, that we all recognized as being after nine eleven, as we were justifying going to war with Iraq. If you're going to mm-hmm. signpost what your situation is that specifically, you need to go all the way and make it about the things that were specific to that era. And if you're just going to make it vague, if, if it was the, if it was the same movie and they were just talking about real things, you the problems would still be there. That wouldn't actually change or fix anything or change. What I saying. think if you the more specific you get, the more it's easy to find out what you're about. When everything is vague in terms of the specifics of the situation, then your message gets muddled. Okay, yeah. Like they don't say where they're at war; they just say there is a war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't bring in any of the ideas of oh, like. The the guy who wants to go to war is just this hoorah hawk who wants to go to war because he thinks war is cool. But it has it, it has tra- it trades on audience familiarity. with the Yeah, it has nothing to say about war than... is like this. Like they talk about this report that has the pros and cons of war, but doesn't talk about the fact that it probably talks about how war creates jobs and war contributes to this economy and war contributes to these international relations upon like between the U.S. and Britain as we're like combining troops to go die in another country. It's not about, like, oh, we're going to get oil reserves. Like, it doesn't talk about those things because it's not specific enough to do it because it won't commit to any of that. Mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, that comes from the intent of the show and what the creators are good at. Like, it came out of a satire of the party's political system of the UK. Yeah. but uh, And applying that exact format and writing to a far broader and more moral issue yeah. uh, than a political issue does not lend itself to a, the best thematic like content. like more specific versions of kind of this same kind of story are shows probably like the thick of it i didn't watch that but like 30 rock and parks and recreation like those are very specific framing devices for kind of the same kind of ideas about politics and people but because mm-hmm. they're very specific they can be more like they can take a stand and they can say something more important about what they're 
like their subject they're covering and they don't even have to be like super serious i'm not advocating that you can still be a good comedy but i think as anyone hears sorry i think you have to have like a very strong stance to bring forth comedy like if you're just telling jokes on all sides and just lobbing bombs at everybody uh to get laughs like i don't think that's good comedy even if it's funny i don't think that's good comedy it's a fair point yeah, I don't disagree. I just, I don't know. I I don't think it's... Um, Sinks the movie fully? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the thing. Like, I enjoyed this movie. But when I think about it, I, I, like, it's gross. Like, I find it really gross. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the show as well, like, the, the way they approach comedy does... It's that South Park centrism thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the central problem with everything they do. Uh, like there's are two moments in the entirety of the thick of it, and not one in the loop where a character has like a human moment and makes a stand and set and cares about a thing. And they're in the last episode and like one of the specials, and that's it. And the lack of those moments does really hurt. Yeah, I, it's just not true. Like even people who do terrible things believe in their stances of why they're doing terrible things often. Or they at least can be can, can convince themselves of it. But we don't see any of that in this movie. No, I mean Ma- Malcolm's character believes in what he's doing, but none of that's in it. Yeah, none of that's in that movie. Mm-hmm. No, because like I said, it's, it's tied. He's up just in like he's politics. just like this weird PR chaos gremlin that shows up to like make someone's hair look nice and swear a lot. Like that's not interesting. Mm-hmm. You're not wrong. Uh, has anyone... Kyle, you need, to, you need to fight back against Matt because I'm no, like I... having Matt's owning the conversation right now. Well, I mean, I don't disagree with him, uh, but I okay, good. But good. at the same time, I agree with Destiny in that I don't think it sinks the film. I think it's still, um, I still think it's interesting. I still think it's funny. There, there's a lot that... of stuff that's really effective. I wonder if in anyone. My opinion. He... Sorry. No, I was just saying. In my opinion, I still think there's a lot of it that's really effective. What were you going to say? Um, and even if it's not as thematically about the power of language in terms of how it's used and used as a weapon and used to be completely meaningless to just fill the air, I still think that's an important aspect of it that you can read into. And I kind of wonder if anyone here has seen Veep. I have only seen the no. first season and I remember not being particularly impressed, but I, I'm wondering if all of us went, if I went back or if any of you watch it, whether, um, Inuchi has kind of um, reached a point where he can make his characters stand for something and make his uh, political satire significantly more incisive and have a particular point of view other than everyone is a moron in politics. Right. Which I agree agree with Matt may not be particularly interesting, but I think in the way that he presents it, it's still very funny. Like, as an example, I'll take a bit that could be read as like this kind of hopeful non-nihilistic theme but also can totally be uh read as that because of the way they play the comedy so the stuff with steve coogan and the wall yes uh-huh. and the other constituents to be fair this is my uh, favorite thing in the movie me too and that's <laughs> that's what the thick of it is more of it uh I, there's a way to read that as the film commenting on uh ignoring actual people for these high concept things and those actually matter mm-hmm. uh like the film is criticizing this guy looking at his constituents as if they're above as if he's above them but at the same time the film is making a joke and wants you to laugh at how quote unquote mental his constituents but, are like i think 
like a good comedy would acknowledge the fact that to people who are dealing with international politics, this does seem trivial, but how also mm-hmm. this is the basic mechanism that wall represents government. I, 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 yeah, I don't think and that like he's a this would, this, problem, this would be the B plot of a good West Wing episode. Yes. Yes, it would. Yeah. And it would end with some fucking monologue about. Yeah. Wall. But at the end of the day, <laughs> the reason that works is because it, it draws the lines for you of how these small things actually like the conflict between yes. him not giving a shit about this wall and this man being obsessed with this wall are the actual conflicts between how we relate to our governments every day. Yes. And that's why that's the most interesting part of the yeah, movie. Yeah, but they don't really explore it in the way they should because they're doing other stuff. No, and because to get a laugh, they are also portraying his constituents as ben- like, as legitimately benign mm-hmm. and a joke. Like the way it cuts to Anel got the septic tank. And I've, I have worked in a constituent's office, an MP's constituent office. And I have replied emails to people's problems mm-hmm. and what they are. And in that office, there is an atmosphere of, oh my god, this fucking guy wants me to deal with this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, half the, most of the problems, in fact, I would say over 75% of the problems are, for fuck's sake, why haven't you granted my husband his visa? Or why are you deporting us? Or And they are these real things that are seen as this statistic, but are actually a massive part of these people's lives. And the movie and the show don't get into any of that at all. And I wish m- more political things would when comedy sure. the divide between. But even even uh, this like lighter version of this, where it's just the wall, like that's ex- that's entirely what Parks and Rec is about. Oh, I should watch Parks and Rec then. I guess that's true. She, you know, she's this like the first season is just about town. her trying to get this park built, and like everything revolves around that. Ah. Uh. I guess I should watch that. And like I like I've not watched all of that show, and I, I have problems with it for other reasons. But um, mm-hmm. I think it gets this part specifically really right in a way that I wish in the loop. The thing is, in the loop's just trying like it's trying to bite off too much, and I don't think it has the chops to do it, especially when it gets into the Americans, which I don't think they. I don't think this is like the most cursory I listen to CNN like view of American politics I could possibly imagine. Yep. What are, what are you other people think who live in America about how it deals with American politics? I thought that, um, honestly, like, there are people, like, the James Gandolfini character, there are guys like yeah, that. Yeah, but he's also, and, he's also like, the most nuanced American, I think, in the, the movie. But I'll there aren't that, that many, that's true. there aren't that many Americans to begin with. In the movie, I also there are, but, what, four but characters? there are four characters, but, but they're they're half of the characters, and they drive almost all of the plot. Yeah, they're important characters. Like Eliza Wald character, she's just like, what is she, the assistant? Mm-hmm. And that paper she writes is like the thing, everything. And yeah. then there's suck up creepy gopher guy who exists only to be weird in scenes. Oh, <laughs> I thought that guy was hilarious. He's hilarious. Oh, I, I saw him. him. I saw him in person once. He's very tall. Yeah, yeah, he was great on The Office. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I think that character's great because it shows like that sort of how cutthroat and insidery. Like he's fighting for like this thing that in the end he's gonna just end up like these other people. And uh, I, 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 I liked that as a kind of almost like a workplace comedy thing. Like all that stuff worked really well for me. Like the stuff with him and Anna Chomsky. And I know she's on Veep now, just to like get full circle with that. 
Um, uh, all of that was highly amusing. But like, as far as like the portrayal of Americans, um, I think a lot of the, those jokes were there for, uh, you know, they're for the British people watching to just kind of go, yeah. "Yep, that's what they're like." And so, mm-hmm. I, none of it was offensive. It was just sort of. Oh no, I don't mean like is it offensive? I mean like how does, how broad is it? Because it seems like oh, the broadest fucking. I is, think it's really I, broad. I, yeah, okay. yeah, it is yeah. broad. I don't think it's inaccurate, but I do think it's broad. There's some stuff mm-hmm. that's spot on. And then... Like the joke where he goes to the White House and he's meeting with a twelve-year-old. Yeah. Oh, I love like, that bit. It's it's hilarious, but it seems like out of a different movie to where you started, and it's very concerned yeah, th- with. Yeah, he just like that's just a scene out of Idiocracy. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I don't know what that is. It's a great Mike Judge movie that's also super cynical about America. Mm-hmm. But like that would that is in a different universe to how it handles its British characters. True. Uh, um, in terms of that. I mean, there's, 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 it's funny, because he's fucking 12-year-old in the White House. (laughs) (laughs) The vice president has also graced us with his presence. Oh, man. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, but... I wouldn't call it a perfect satire, but I I enjoyed it highly. Like, I would probably watch it again. I would like to watch Thick of It. Um, I'm sad to hear about the sexism problems because, yeah, that was a big deal for the movie and I didn't understand why you've got this totally competent character and she's just kind of there to be insulted the entire movie. Uh, Judy? Judith? Whatever her name was. That, that's what happened to Terry. Yeah. Is the, the text very thick of it in that she starts and she is there to be insulted but the show is aware of that and portrays the insults as her as bad and she's the one who actually is doing her job and but I then mean, by the time they got to in the loop she is just they apparently take the jokes as like her characterization right and and some of it is like she knows she's good at her job and she doesn't get super offended but it still is frustrating to watch as a viewer you're like when does she sort of get her moment to to kind of flick them all off or she never really gets that or when does the movie and show acknowledge that as the butt of like be critical of mm-hmm. her thank it presents you, its yeah. comedy against her in an uncritical way right that's true it, 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 it doesn't really work to just have her there to be insulted instead the movie actually ends with it. like this woman with cartoon hair and Malcolm getting a dig in at her as the credits roll right yeah and so that that's super not cool. Well, never mind that all of the criticism, like all of the jokes that are like at li- directed at someone's appearance, are all directed at women. Yep, there's there are all young people. Yeah, it. young people and women. Mm-hmm. You look you look younger than my nephew does, and he's five. Maybe from yeah. There's a couple head. of Frodo. Simon looks <laughs> like Frodo. Frodo. Yeah, a lot of that. And well, it, they're not even like funny. well done. Yeah, no. Well, if you like them, that's fine. But yeah, I just I don't know. The the, the Frodo joke is funny. But, <laughs> uh, no, the, a lot of them are just hmm hmm. Yeah, and uh, this show is kind of sold to me as like the end all be all British political series that I should check out. Uh, it's probably the closest one to that you'll get. Yeah. But as someone who is more critical, who understands. Uh, like what drives comedy and what's punching up and what's punching down. Mm-hmm. There'll be bits that you'll be going along, and then you'll be like, "Oh, just great, random transphobic joke because com- comedy." 
Right, yeah. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe I was kind of expecting something like the season four of The Wire, but with jokes. And I think that's what I wanted. And to be fair, the way the thick of it and in the loop are talked up, you do get that impression. I absolutely got mm-hmm. that impression. Yeah. Uh, Which is probably why I'm so, I'm, I'm so cold on it, because I have you such feel a high... Let, you feel let yeah. down. Yeah. Because everyone had talked it up as this nuanced thing, but it's just the same. It's just funny. Yeah. It's... It's concerned with comedy far more than it is with theme, and its theme is just, uh... Yep. <laughs> and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. I'm glad we watched it, though. Oh, sure, I would never have watched this, because I normally don't... Yeah. Like, movies that have this kind of reputation, I actually just stay away from, because it almost always goes this way. Ah, eh, it was always kind of on my watch list, personally. Have you seen Yes Minister, Jackson? No. no, I've seen clips, but I don't know how it is as a thing. I only saw it when I was younger. I'm curious as to. I, I've heard that it's like that. That the thick of it is basically a modern version of Yes Minister, and I'm curious again as to how nihilistic and fatalistic Yes Minister is. Whether it paints the same ideas in the same way. Um, I don't know. I'm fairly sure because it started in it was it was a show in the 80s, so it was a show about. Uh, Thatcher Brennan. Feel like it might be less so, but I would have to actually properly watch it. One of the writers for that show was Jonathan Lind, who wrote and directed Clue and My Cousin Vinny. Oh, yes. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. I don't know. I need to watch. actually go and watch Yes Minister. But I guess I guess that's the end of that. <laughs> I guess we reached the end of that talk. Totally. So, mm, yeah, well, well done, us. Do we have yeah, final watched thoughts? Watch the movie. But yeah, what are your thoughts? What are everyone's final thoughts? Let's sum up. I, uh, like I said, I didn't, I didn't hate this movie. I was watching and I had a pretty good time. It's just like if this if I being critical about a thing means being critical about a thing and i think this thing is full of holes that's all mm-hmm. destiny um i enjoyed it it was not without its problems but i i would watch again uh would rent <laughs> um and also uh i think everyone should go listen to that radio lab episode which is not Kyle. funny at all <laughs> Kyle um, I'm in agreement with a lot of what Matt um, has criticized it for that being said I still enjoy it a, a hell of a lot this is probably like the 12th time that I've seen it I just find it endlessly quotable um, and very <laughs> very funny and I, I like to as I said give it a little bit more credit with regard to how it handles language but yeah that's about it I had seen this film like twice before, uh, so I just found it uh, hard to watch because removed from the, cause the jokes weren't landing for the, the, the. I've heard a lot of them a lot, so not laughing at it, it just became all the problems and the problems were revealed. Because the first time I saw it, it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen, and it was like that's the best in the loop's the best. But removed from that, the problems became more obvious this time. Probably not going to watch it again, but I'm glad I've seen it a few times. And yeah. I will continue to watch it. I don't watch movies 12 times, so... 
I'm shocked you do, Kyle. As many movies as you, as you watch, it's like amazing to me that you can uh, rewatch things. <laughs> it's great, though. I no, to be fair, I prob- I've, I've there are episodes of The West Wing I've seen like eight times already. Um, <laughs> sometimes they do like wear me out, where I my opinion changes very drastically on them. Like I had seen Sweeney Todd several times, and then this past Halloween, I think I mentioned it, I watched different versions of the stage production and then i watched the tim burton film again and i was like nope this isn't very good <laughs> oh didn't we get a question like we that? we did a very similar question from aaron mattingly he asked i'd like to hear from you i'd like to hear about a film from each of you that you initially disliked and grew to love upon rewatching. destiny i have two go i um did not like Oh Brother Where Art Thou the first time I tried to watch it. <gasps> I thought it was so boring. And then I I don't know what my problem was. And when I finally just sat, paid attention, now it's one of my favorite films. Um, and then the other one was, oh goodness, I didn't like Death to Smoochie. It took me about three viewings. Oh, you know what? I have a third as well. Uh, I didn't like... Um, oh my goodness, I'm losing it. What was that? Oh, uh, Raging Bull. And now I love Raging Bull. It just, like, I couldn't get over the yucky bits of Raging Bull, but when I realized it's coming from this, like, they're not painting Jake LaMotta as a good guy, and once you mm-hmm. sort of realize that, it, it, it becomes a better movie. I still hate that Kyle. movie. That's okay. Like <laughs> I, I said, it took me a lot, and it, I, I don't think it's for everyone. It's the yucky bits that you talk about that I can't get past. It's right. It's so um, repugnant that I can't even... I get that it's from that the perspective of a terrible character, but it's not something that I want to watch. It's right, my, exactly. It's hard. It's I have trouble watching certain films where they're from the perspective of a really terrible character. And I get that they are from the perspective of that character, but it's just like, I don't want to be in the headspace of that person. I don't right, and I think that's totally fair. I, that's why I don't like the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I respect it, but I don't like it. Uh, the movie okay. for me that I did not like initially, but that I really, really liked upon a rewatch is um, Thomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In. Um, I saw it a couple of years ago, I think, from the time it was released on Netflix. And I just remember finding it like very dull and very uninteresting. And I remember liking the remake a lot more because I felt like it was able to key into some of the ideas that it was going for better. I would need a rewatch, but I rewatched it in October. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a queer film. There's a, there's a queer reading here that you can talk about. And I just immediately found it heartbreaking and, and very emotional. And I had a very strange reaction to it of how emotional I got when I realized that it could be read as a queer film. Just that kind of isolation and whatnot was very, was very striking to me. And it's, it's gorgeous. I think that I didn't, I think at that point I didn't really get that the bleakness and the, um, very cold quality to that film was intentional. I guess I hadn't jammed with Bergman yet, but I very much adore it now. Matt? Um, I have a weird thing where I, I, I pretty much know if a movie is 
going to be one of those that when I revisit, I'll probably like it more. Like, they're just my put-off movies. Like, I see this, I'm like, uh, I didn't really like this. Someday I probably will. Uh, No Country for Old Men is probably the biggest one of those. I don't like that movie. I'm pretty sure that 45-year-old me is going to love that movie. Um, (laughs) the, The one experience, like, the ones I've come around on is pretty much everything in Kubrick's filmography. Uh, minus one or two, the first time I saw them, I disliked them. Uh, and I've since come around on almost all of it. I still have a contentious relationship with some of it, but, uh, especially, specifically, and most deliberately, uh, Lolita and The Shining are movies that I didn't like until my fourth time watching each of them. Hmm. Cool. Uh, mine is the one that I feel is uh, me becoming a better person. And the first time I saw uh, Django Unchained, I was like, uh. And then I watched it a year later and had grown a lot and my views about what it was about uh, become more aware. And I was like, oh, okay, Django Unchained. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. Well done. Good. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And felt very stupid because Django Unchained is great. Originally, I was like, hmm, why does it go on so long? Uh, Why is the... Why is there like an hour in the middle of the film where the only thing it's doing is will these guys be found out? Why don't you like it, Kyle? And then, yeah, Kyle, um, I don't like it. Dislike. I think my dislike for it has less to do with its political um, and racial text and more of it just formally speaking. I feel that it's really, really sloppy and a lot of the aesthetic choices to me don't make sense, especially in the context of Tarantino's work previously. And I I blame that mostly because I, he was using a different editor. Because some of it just feels very unfinished and um, roughly hewn. hewn. Like, there, mm. there's a flashback sequence that is intentionally overexposed, but it's like, it doesn't make sense with the rest of how they used um, kind of the, the medium. It just seems out of place to me like it deserve deserves to be in a different film this is how i feel about inglorious so bastards by the way up and down oh really yes i actually think oh i love that movie too i actually think that inglorious bastards i jango and chain made me like inglorious bastards even more yeah i don't like inglorious bastards but i really like jango and chain i feel that inglorious bastards follows all these different characters and each of them has a relatively unique um aesthetic quality to them whether it's the dialogue or the cinematography or the sound or anything and then they when they intersect um at the end of the of inglorious bastards their aesthetic qualities intersect and seem to flatten out into something that's um i guess averaged out and that doesn't happen in django it has these characters that seem to have a particularly unique way of how Tarantino wants to manifest their qualities visually or or formally, and then there's never a re- reconciliation at the end. I mean, for me, Django Unchained is Tarantino found a way to put theme into Kill Bill Volume 1. Because it's like a genre pastiche, but it manages to be about something in a way that like Kill Bill Volume 1 is the most pastiche film, but it, it isn't about anything. Like, it's fun, but it's totally disposable. Mm-hmm. And Django is not that. Django is we found the way to put like invest this with a lot of meaning. Mm-hmm. Like it totally feels like a not in off, often it feels like not a Tarantino film, but I think that's deliberate. I mean, he's playing with genre in like a very uh, stylistic, like formalistic way, 
Like, I don't think Tarantino's interested in making Tarantino movies. That's true. I just think it's great. I think it's really beautiful in a lot of ways. I don't know. I, I don't really have much to say about it that hasn't been said. I also don't like *Inglorious Bastards*. So. Oh, you're all oh, weird! You're I think that movie's I so good. Can't... Goes on forever. No, but so it, you don't feel it. Django. Yes, you do. I didn't feel it. I can... don't know. Maybe I... that's just me. Can I offer hot cake? <laughs> you can offer it. <laughs> I think *Manderley* is better than *Django Unchained*. No, *Manderley* is um... a garbage movie. I what? haven't seen *Manderley* in years. Why is I *Manderley* a garbage film? I don't, is way outside the realm of this already too long podcast. We should talk about it off the mic. I don't okay. want to talk about uh, Manderley. Why? I haven't, I haven't seen, seen it, it here, in so a year I and a half, so I Yeah, it's not fresh, I need to go but... back to it. I liked, I, I love Dogville. No, that's like, a, oh, I think, Dogville. I think it is, I think that Lars von, it's the one time where I feel like he is the thing the critics accuse of him and, and outstepping his knowledge base to say a thing that he is not, he is not equipped or does not have the right to say. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. I, I probably on rewatch would agree. I remember enjoying the movie, but I didn't love it the way I loved Dogville. But I would... Dogville, I rewound and immediately started over and watched again. Dogville, I have seen mul- multiple, multiple times, like a couple dozen times. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> but I've seen it so many times that I feel great watching it for some reason, which is probably the masochist in me. But I would <laughs> argue that um, Larson Shear... If he doesn't have a place to say what he's saying, I would argue that Tarantino is just as much in that place and not having a place. But he's an American, and I, I don't know. It's it's hard to get into. I mean, I, like I if think... you want to argue that Tarantino, his entire filmography, has been trading on black experiences in a way that is probably gross, yeah, I'd agree with you, hundred percent. Okay, but yeah, at this fair. point, he's two decades into it, so either you're on board or not. Mm-hmm. And also, I think. He he approached it with like a sensitivity and an insight that uh, actually was really surprising because I went into that movie full of dread that he was just going to be offensive yep. and awful. And I thought it was going to be something where I was going to have to stop being a Tarantino fan. And I came out of that surprised and moved um, Dogville or excuse me, Manderley. I, I just need to revisit. It's been too long. I, I can't answer to that. Well, that brings us to the end on this four-hour podcast. <laughs> no more questions? Uh, no, that was it. Sadly, yeah. Don't disappointingly... We're not disappointed in you. We're disappointed in our listeners who should send us questions. I did. I got on Callum. I was like, Callum, send us a question. He said, I'll do one tomorrow. And he didn't. Oh, well, this is all Callum's fault. <laughs> okay, hey, Callum, Callum. You're letting us down. If I could unfollow you again, I would. Callum doesn't know you've unfollowed you. Well, he, he does if he listens to this. Okay. Wow. Callum will realize in months. Real but... nice. Uh, anyway, can I talk about the movie I picked for us to watch next month? Hell yeah, you can. Um... Let's begin the outro. Yeah. Okay. So, you guys, we're going to watch Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. Destiny, I've already seen Do the Right Thing. Well, everybody but Jackson. But it's time. <laughs> it's time to rewatch Do the Right Thing. I'm okay this with this. This is good. I'm okay with this. This is, I'm really this is important. It's an important movie. It is 
like I feel like Spike Lee is unfairly sort of dismissed still to this day. I feel like well obviously the cultural climate demands that we rewatch Do the Right Thing. And I just want to rewatch it cuz it's been a while for me. Yeah. Cool. I would argue we should do a double feature of that and Lahane, but I don't want to but this is your Lahane? Yeah. It, I can watch it if you want to talk about it. Like I'm totally like I don't want to make it like double homework for everyone. I don't want to make it double if... I don't want to make it double homework for anyone either, but if you want to watch it, I, I do recommend it because um although Spike Lee is very much angry at the director for like treading on the same ground, I think it still offers an interesting perspective because it handles a different point of intersectionality than Do the Right Thing does. Okay. Wait, Spike Lee's angry at the people who made Lahane? Yes. He hates them. Well, why? Because he says that it's the same thing. And I would say that it's similar, but it's not the same thing. But lots of movies are similar. All right, yeah, we're done. We're done here. Yeah, it's Spike Lee. He... Who wants to say the Twitter accounts? You can find me at LitRock, L-I-T-R-O-C-K. I also do a podcast at Normal Mapping with Jackson. You can find it at normalmapping.com. Yep. It's about video games. It's good. Kyle. Uh, you can find me at Tyle Kerner, T-Y-L-E-K-U-R-N-E-R. I'm also assistant editor at moviemezzanine.com. And you can find my work at tilekerner.tumblr.com, where I write around the internet about movies. Destiny. I am at... Fridge Buzz Now, which is all one word. You can find my other podcasts, Badland Girls at badlandgirls.com, and Matt and I do a book club, Books for Crooks, at booksforcrooks.tumblr.com. And I'm just on Twitter at tylea002. Everything else has been covered. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. See you next, Ides.